You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. President Biden used the bully pulpit of the presidency last night to talk about gun violence in his powerful 17-minute address to the nation. The president declared enough listed a number of gun safety measures and then asked, what will the Congress do? Whether Biden's speech will move Congress to do anything remains to be seen. Joining me now to discuss the politics of this moment is Dan Baltz, chief correspondent at the Washington Post. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you. All right, so how likely is it that the president's powerful words will give a boost to his latest efforts to, the the latest efforts on Capitol Hill to do something, anything about gun safety, gun violence? Jonathan, I think we're on two separate tracks here. I think that the the Congress, particularly in the Senate, the negotiators are working on their own um, package, if you will. Um, And I think that that is, somewhat and perhaps significantly separated from what the president did last night. I think, you know, President Biden is sometimes criticized for saying what he thinks, for saying out loud what he thinks. And I think last night, well, that was an example of the president saying what he thinks, irregardless of whether there's any likelihood that the package that he outlined uh, has any prospect of being enacted in Congress, which it almost certainly does not. I mean, the kinds of steps he's talking about, banning assault weapons and and, uh, high-capacity magazines and things like that, um, do not seem to be at all on the agenda of the members of Congress. So I I think we're in two different places, but I think in some some cases or in some instances, this was an example of a president uh, speaking about where he thinks ultimately this country ought to go uh, to try to do something about this terrible scourge of gun violence. And whether it has any impact on the Congress, I think, um, is something that was separate from his uh, sense of priorities of what he needed to do as president. Well, actually, I was just about to ask you whether you thought the president's speech would help or hurt that second track, um, that track that's going on in Congress, their own separate negotiations, because before he gave that speech, the the narrative here in Washington was the president was holding, was keeping an arm's length to what was happening on the Hill for fear of messing things up or injecting the White House into something that is doomed to fail? Well, I guess I would say that it probably did not necessarily help in any significant way on on Capitol Hill. Um, We know that Republicans would like him to stay out of it, and I think some Democrats probably feel that same way, that, uh, that, that these negotiations have to take place among the, you know, if you will, the family in the Senate um, without intervention by the president or without a kind of an effort on the president to rally public opinion. But, uh, but I think all the members of Congress can feel that we're in a place where in some way or another, something there's, there's pressure for some kind of action. Now, what we're talking about in terms of Congress is quite modest. Let's be honest about that. But people like Senator Chris Murphy, who has been, you know, a, a champion supporter of doing something, uh, has made it clear that he believes any progress is progress. Any kind of enactment of a law 
however small, is some sign of progress, which ultimately over time could lead to other changes. Um, that's probably an optimistic view, given what we know about the kind of the, the rigidity and the, the opposition to anything significant in terms of gun control. Um, but that's where things are in the in the Congress. And uh, but, you know, we've had three mass shootings over, you know, a two week period, two and a half week period. Um, and as the president said, and, and I think he spoke for a lot of people enough. Um, what do we do about this? So, um, the, you know, moving public opinion is part of the challenge of a president. It's always been said mm -hmm. that the president can only go as far as public opinion is willing to go. He's trying to move public opinion a little bit. Whether it's going to have any impact on the Senate, I think, is questionable. Right. And in that speech, there was a bow to reality from the president where he listed all of the things that he wanted to do. and acknowledge that, yeah, they might not go anywhere in the Congress, and therefore the American people need to rise up and go to the ballot box and have their voices heard in November, which I thought was was an interesting turn in the president's speech. As you noted, there have been three mass shootings in the last 12 days or so in the United States. And last night's speech, after last night's speech, there was another mass shooting, this one in, in Ames, Iowa. But all of this is happening on top of the president's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about inflation, uh, about Ukraine in the New York Times, now comes last night's speech. When a president does this much media, Dan, as you know, it's about reclaiming the narrative on his administration. Will it work? It's gonna be very tough, Jonathan. Um, there's so much There's so much happening right now uh, that it's, you know, that it's, very difficult for a president to stay on top of all of that and to persuade the American people uh, that he really has things under control. Obviously, you know, there are new jobs numbers out this morning that are that are pretty strong. Um, they're not over 400,000 new jobs, which has been what we've had for basically the last uh, every month for the last year. But it's very, very close, uh, indicating that the job growth continues. And yet we know that inflation is the major issue on the on the minds of the American people right. Um, right. and these very high gas prices. Um, and the president and his team have been trying without much success to look like they're on top of it. But his powers are quite limited in being able to do much about that. And so um, in, in an effort to try to change the message or, or reinforce a message that in one way or another hasn't broken through, um, they've been pushing very hard in the last few days. But I think we're at a point now in the midterm election year in which um, attitudes begin to get set and settled. Uh, it's pretty difficult to change people's attitudes once you get past the end of the second quarter of, of an election year. And I think that that's kind of what the administration recognizes they're up against. Um, it's very difficult. It's, it's very rare that a president's approval ratings increase during an election year. Uh, we, have, we have not seen that with President Biden. So all of the indicators continue to be very difficult for the for the Democrats, particularly uh, in the House elections, but also in the Senate. Well, I, the unemployment rate in May uh, is at 3.6 percent, which I believe is holding steady from April. Job creation, not 400,000, but 399, <laughs> 399,000. Strong numbers, as you said, but uh, might not do the trick for the president. I mean, historically, the president's party loses ground in almost every midterm election. The last midterm to defy that truism was 2002, President George W. Bush, in his first term, Republicans gained seats 
uh, with Bush in the White House. And so maybe I'm asking you to repeat what you just said, but given where things are right now, can Democrats stop the impending losses or just mitigate the size of the impending losses? I think Democrats are at a point where their, you know, their hope is simply to to keep losses as low as they possibly can. But um, there's every indication that the, I mean, the Republicans don't need many seats. They only need a handful of seats to take over the House of Representatives. There's almost no way that the Democrats are going to be able to prevent that. Uh, so I think we're looking at a minimum of a House in Republican hands come next January. I think that the other battle will now be uh, focused on the Senate. Um, and that's, you know, we're basically in kind of toss-up range as to whether the Democrats will be able to hold what is a, a you know, what is a 50-50 um, quote unquote majority in the Senate or whether uh, they will slip back and we'll see Mitch McConnell as the Senate majority leader come January. So um, I, the, the range of losses that people are talking about, people who are better handicappers than I am, are in the range of you know a loss of 20 seats in the House, 25 seats in the House, 30 seats in the House, somewhere in that range. Um, and that, you know, that that changes the whole equation for the Biden presidency, as everybody recognizes. Oh, is the unreported story here, Dan? I mean, we focus so much on, on the House, but is the unreported story that the Senate, I mean, you just said a moment ago that, you know, it's in toss-up range, but that the Senate is gone for the Democrats as well. Well, it may be. I think that, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're a handful of Democratic seats that are at risk. Arizona is one, Georgia is another, Nevada is one, possibly New Hampshire, although I think that's in a little better shape because Governor Sununu, the Republican governor, decided not to seek the Senate seat to challenge Maggie Hassan. Um, there are, you know, there are a couple of Republican seats that are that are uh, at risk. One is Pennsylvania. Um, Senator Toomey is, is retiring and that seat is going to be up for grabs. Uh, at this point, we don't know who the Republican nominee is because they haven't been able to finish counting what is a very close race in that in that primary. Uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, incumbent, uh, is is certainly very vulnerable. He's been underestimated in in both his previous elections and prevailed when Democrats thought they were going to be able to win. But but he's uh, he's at risk. Um, so when you you know when you balance those scales, you've you've got a situation in which it could tip either way. Um, and I don't think we know at this point. Part of it will have to do with where where the levels of enthusiasm are in November between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Republicans have had the advantage throughout the year. We'll see whether the gun issue or the uh, the pending abortion decision by the Supreme Court changes that equation. Uh, it's certainly possible that that would happen. Um, but um, but the battle for the Senate is going to be a battle royal from here to November. Yep. As always, I'm sitting here in agreement with Dan Baltz. <laughs> Dan, Chief Correspondent for The Washington Post, thank you, as always, very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. All right. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, Charles Lane and Jennifer Rubin. Uh, Chuck, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, let, I wanna start this conversation by taking a look at a portion of President Biden's speech uh, last night that asks the key 
question. Watch. Over the last two decades, more school-age children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. Think about that. More kids than on-duty cops killed by guns. More kids than soldiers killed by guns. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? So, the, the, I mean, the key question from the president, how much, how much carnage are we willing to take? There have been close to 20 mass shootings since Uvalde, and maybe 21 if you count last night's um, shooting right after the president's speech in Ames, Iowa. Uh, I'll start with you, Jennifer. Your reaction to the president's speech, did it meet the moment? Will it change in any way the political dynamic? Well, I think um, for starters, um, it was actually one of his better speeches. It was short. It was empathetic. Um, it had a clear message. Um, and I think he channeled some of the anger and frustration in the country. Sometimes the president is there to lead and sometimes he's there to act as a, a mirror. And I, in that case, I think he was reflecting a lot of what people are feeling. So um, rhetorically, I think he met the moment. Um, I think he sees that the Republicans are somewhat on the defensive, that people are very angry about the utter lack of progress. Did it move the equation? I tend to agree with your prior guest, Dan Baltz, um, always a good principle, um, that it's really gonna depend upon what happens in the Senate. There are these private negotiations going on. And if you wanna be really cynical, you could say that the Senate negotiations are going so well that the president got out there with a speech to try to take some credit for it if in fact the senators reached an agreement. Um, but I think um, the emotional moment um, required the president to speak. And I think the president all this week was attempting to once again kind of seize the bully pulpit and put himself back in focus. This White House has had such difficulty positioning him in a way that, as they say, breaks through. And so you saw an op-ed on inflation. You saw him meet with the baby formula executives uh, and you saw the speech this week. So I think it's really an effort to force him back into the uh, public eye and to project um, strength and empathy. Mm -hmm. Chuck. Well, you know, I'm struck by the statistic the president quoted there about how many school-aged children have died from guns as compared to the people who, you know, consciously take that risk, soldiers and law enforcement officers. And I think for me, it, sh it shows most of those people were not in school shootings, you know, shootings at schools. They were caught up in the random, you know, kind of everyday gun violence that goes on in this country that, you know, for some reason we're, we're almost losing sight of you know, it goes on every weekend in the big cities of this country, like Baltimore, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, you guys know the whole list. And I just wanted to point that out because in our justified concern and uh, outrage of, over these school shootings, we almost lose sight of this steady drumbeat of death that's going on. And I think that in a funny way, the president was almost trying to, to weigh in kind of almost in anticipation of more of that, because honestly, guys, he can't go to every single, if, if all this president did was go to visit the sites of these mass killings, he, he wouldn't have time for anything else. I tend to agree that in spite of the fact that he captured a lot of the reality here in a very cogent, powerful way and listed measures 
that have not only been enacted in the past, such as the assault weapons ban, but in some places have had bipartisan support, such as the 21-year age limit, that the political uh, cards are stacked against anything like that passing the Congress. So we're left with this feeling of, uh, I don't know what it is, catharsis or frustration. You, you take your pick. They're sort of both in that speech, but also a sense of uh, kind of futility. Yeah, at the federal level, I've, you know, I, I have no hopes for any kind of progress. It seems as though all the hopes should be placed at the state level, which isn't <clears throat> isn't wholly satisfying. But when you look at what happened in just happened in New York, the state legislature passed, I believe it was a um, an age limit law on on assault weapons going to Governor Hochul's desk. She's going to sign it. New York will will um, join the ranks of putting an age limit on buying assault rifles. I mean, that's not as much as people want, but it is something. Let's change gears and talk about something else that the president doesn't have control over, inflation. You both wrote about inflation this week. Jennifer, um, the president released a plan to combat inflation in the Wall Street Journal. You mentioned that a moment ago. What did you make of it? Well, um, his plan to uh, solve inflation is basically talk to the Federal Reserve. And, you know, he's in this peculiar position because presidents really don't control inflation. It really is the purview of the Federal Reserve. But a president can't go to the country and say, not my problem, not my job. So I think this is an effort to um, sort of show that he cares. Um, he keeps saying that. He feels people's um, pain and um, discomfort at not being able to pay their bills. Um, but I think it was also an effort to do small things that he thinks can ameliorate the pinch that many families are experiencing. He, he released the oil from the petroleum reserve. He's trying to work on uh, unjamming the uh, uh, chain, uh, the uh, supply chains. Um, and I think, you know, these small things um, are not going to be what solves inflation, but I think he has to be shown as doing something. Um, and um, I think um, they're kind of um, a little bit betwixt and between about what to do. Um, they keep throwing out the notion that they're reducing um, the deficit. It's not all that clear among economist that that has anything to do with inflation. Um, but nevertheless, I think he's trying. I think he's trying to show that he understands the problem. This is the focus of people's concern. And in a way, I think dragging the Federal Reserve chairman over to the White House was a way of kind of pointing the finger so that people remind uh, or people are reminded that there's other this other guy <laughs> whose job it is to fight inflation. I don't think that's going to work, by the way. I think people are going to hold the president responsible. And I think those of us who are old enough to have gone through the 1970s, 70s-style inflation know how uh, debilitating that can be for a president, how um, angst-ridden the voters can be because of inflation. It's really a huge problem for this administration. And Chuck, you had an interesting take on the benefits of inflation. Benefits? Explain that as you give your, your thoughts on Biden's inflation. Well, it was, uh, it was a modest, small, transitory, to use a loaded word, uh, benefit of inflation, which is <laughs> that we have inflated away a little bit of our national debt uh, because of this. You know, the government borrows in dollars that are worth more than the ones it has to pay back. And of course, that was reflected in the last CBO report. You know, if, if you wanted to point to any good news out of all this, that was about the best you could do. But obviously that effect will fade. Um, 
You know, I, I agree with Jen that the president is kind of, uh, you know, between a rock and a hard place or whatever cliche you want to use on this, except there's one there is one area where I think he does share some responsibility for this inflation, which is the oversized American Rescue Plan, uh, which he was warned about by economists, even within the Democratic camp. It's notorious now. Larry Summers said that. And so, you know, he he does have just enough responsibility for this to make the Republican attacks, which were going to be powerful anyway, stick even more. And, um, you know, the other aspect of this is there are certain things he could do, such as removing tariffs or at least reducing them on Chinese goods that he can't do because they're unpopular politically, particularly within, you know, the Rust Belt uh, uh, states where he's uh, he and Democratic candidates are trying to win. So, uh, you know, it is it is worse, I say, I think, even than than Jen says in terms of the problem that this is creating for him. So today the jobs numbers came out, the unemployment number came out, unemployment at 3.6%, that's good. Job creation, 399,000, not as good as April, um, but still good. Uh, is that something that the president and Democrats can hang their hat on and try to show the American people that, you know what, look, the, the economy is going better than you think. Well, so. it's it's yeah, very hard to convince people that things are better yeah. than they think. Um, and you know, um, this is the problem he faces. The vast, vast majority of people are employed now. They were employed before. Everyone, however, is suffering from inflation. So the job numbers are great um, for those who haven't had work. And frankly, um, the fact that they're not too, too high is some uh, help in the inflation realm, but it's really not gonna solve the inflation problem. And you see the president struggling to remind people, look, look, we've created all these jobs. Look, look, the economy has come back much for, you know, faster and further than we thought. Um, and yet people are still, um, you know, uh, saddled with inflation. And the, the truth of the matter is, I'll just share it amongst us three, um, is that the very rescue plan, which has produced um, this very, very fast recovery, is the same plan that's contributed to inflation. And this was a trade-off. Um, the president um, overspent, um, perhaps, on the uh, rescue plan and beat all the uh, predictions in terms of return of the econ of economic growth and jobs. But the result was inflation. And um, now he's stuck with inflation. He's got the jobs, but people aren't all that impressed by the jobs. So he mm -hmm. has the inflation problem. Just, just a footnote, just a footnote. I think the, the, the thing that causes them not to be impressed by the jobs is that their real wages are being eroded quite significantly by the inflation. So you get a new job, it supposedly pays $20 an hour, but it feels like the $18 an hour you got last year. You know, I, I was just looking over here at my Twitter machine because there was a tweet there about wage growth and, you know, wages are growing, but they're being stripped. Uh, the power of those wage growths are being stripped by by inflation. Let's talk about American democracy a, a, as a campaign issue. Jennifer, how do President Biden, the Senate and House Democrats avoid or mitigate the issue of inflation and, as you say, put democracy on the ballot? It's very hard. Um, people are very motivated by their everyday economic needs. Um, but I think for a lot of reasons, um, 
the least of which is um, that, uh, not the least of which is that the uh, Democratic base needs to be engaged, is I think he does need to, and I think Democrats out there running need to uh, portray um, an accurate picture of what the Republican Party has been, which is very radical, very extreme, um, very obstructionist. And I think they have to make the point that if they want functional government, functional democratic government, they have to make choices at the ballot box. And if they keep returning Republicans to power, we're going to get more gridlock. We're going to have this disconnect between Washington and the general public on guns, on abortion, on most other things. And more importantly, we're empowering people who are very destructive of our democratic process, um, who we've seen um, are, um, you know, sort of cheering from the sidelines, a president who continues to deny the results of the 2020 election, um, and that are really seeking across the country now in a rather terrifying uh conspiracy plan is the only way to put it, um, to undermine elections district by district, uh, precinct by precinct. So mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it's important for the president, who has been very mushy in his rhetoric, to draw a clear distinction between the Democratic Party, which is frankly a normal party, flawed, has policy problems, and the Republicans, who have become um, a rather menacing force in American politics. Um, whether they'll be able to do so, I don't know, and I, I doubt they're going to be able to distract them from inflation, frankly. So, so then, Chuck, is protecting our democracy a compelling electoral pitch? Uh, no, in a word. And the, unfortunately, the reason for that is that everything Jen said swamps it. The, the reality of the economic situation, and I would add the perception at least, and in some places the reality of rising public safety issues, crime, uh, are a proven presidency killer. Uh, just ask Jimmy Carter. And uh, the people, I think, I think what we should all reflect on is the fact that notwithstanding all the things Jen says about the Republican Party, so many people are willing to turn to them in this situation. I think that is a very sobering reality. And in my mind, and I've written this before, it speaks to some extent to the political malpractice of this White House and uh, this Congress in, you know, perhaps making mistakes, failing to anticipate inflation and so forth that have set them up for what looks to me like a, a very, very uh, large wave defeat in November. Or it could just be political selfishness, selfishness of, of some American voters' pocketbook over American democracy. But anyway, that's my little editorial comment. We got to get in um, a little discussion about the Supreme Court before we run out of time. Jennifer, you wrote about how some of the recent Supreme Court decisions are very out of step with public opinion, with perhaps more to come. I'm thinking the impending abor abortion ruling. You suggested reforming the institution in a way that doesn't get the attention uh, that adding justices does. Tell us about it. Well, first of all, this is a fantasy because you're not going to do it before um, the Senate <laughs> filibuster. So this is just Jen Rubin thinking up um, wonderful plans. Um, but listen, the presidential commission that he put together, they didn't quite recommend it, um, but they came out with a lot of positive things to say about a plan that would limit um, the terms of Supreme Court justices, um, which, by the way, are overwhelmingly popular with the public um, because these people, uh, I think the sense has been um, that they've become um, sort of 
radically out of touch. And this is what happens when you have people who are on the court in a, a lifetime appointment for years and years and years. So there have been some good plans out there to have kind of staggered terms so that every president gets a few right. of these um, and that you sort of de-escalate the um, apocalyptic politics that goes on with these confirmation uh, hearings. Um, but again, unless you're going to have a uh, Senate win for the Democrats, which is right. improbable to put it mildly, um, and they're going to hold the House, which is even more improbable. Uh, this is not going to happen in the near term. Doesn't mean it's not and a good campaign issue, however, and doesn't mean it's not a valid issue for Democrats to begin to make the case that the government doesn't work because of a minority that is out of step with America. Right. Right. And and Chuck, we have less than a minute left, but how concerned are you that the Supreme Court is lo losing its legitimacy? And would staggered 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices help matters? Well, I have written the very same thing. So Jen and I have a meeting of minds oh. on that point. I would just want to add that there is a very important uh, Supreme Court uh, decision pending on the question of the Second Amendment and gun control, which right. could yeah. upend uh, some of the state's powers. We don't know what the exact parameters would be. And, you know, that is something we should all be focused on. It's probably going to be uh, brought out within the next four weeks. Jennifer Rubin, Charles Lane, we got to go. But before we do, you know, I'm glad we have that shot of you right now, Jen, because for the longest time I was looking over your shoulder and thinking, why is there a Cosmo behind behind Jennifer <laughs> Rubin. It just looks like a, the perfect Cosmo. And I was like, you know, it's a little early for that, but go ahead, it's Jen. It's 7 o'clock uh, somewhere, so Jonathan. for you. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, Charles Lane, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You thank too. you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.